You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, an hour of news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. I'm Diana Moxon. This week we are once again steeped in the world of theatre, both productions based on tales that were told long ago, one in 1865 and the other in 1912. Later in the show, I'll be talking to Kevin Brown from the University of Missouri's Theatre Department about his new adaptation of the classic 19th century tale of Alice in Wonderland. First, though, we take a trip back to the first decade of the 20th century to an orphanage in New England to meet Jerusha Abbott, a poor teenaged orphan and her mysterious benefactor who pays for her to go to college to be educated as a writer. Her benefactor's only requirement is that she must write him a letter each month to let him know her progress and that he will steadfastly not reveal to her his name or even reply to her letters. And thusly does the musical play Daddy Longlegs get underway. And here to tell us more about Daddy Longlegs are director Margie Peters and actor Dane Johnson, whose production of Daddy Longlegs opens at Talking Horse Theatre tonight. Hello, everybody. Hello. Good hello, morning. hello. So, Margie, set the scene for us. Tell us how the play opens and what we know about Jerusha and her benefactor. The play opens on a very relatable note. Jerusha has had a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. She, as she tells us, is the oldest orphan in the John Greer home, and it has been her responsibility to get all of the orphans scrubbed and presentable for the Board of Trustees visit, which, when there are almost 100 of them, is no small task. So it starts with her talking about her awful day, and then as she comes to the end of it, the head of the orphanage, Mrs. Lippett, calls her into her office with a little bit of a surprise for her. There's a letter from one of the aforementioned trustees telling her that based on her amusing essays, which he has somehow gotten hold of, he thinks she has potential as a writer and would like to send her to college, which is a big deal for a girl who presumably is the oldest at the orphanage because no one has ever chosen her before. Hmm, it's a sad start to the story. And what do we know about her mysterious benefactor? Not much. All she does, all she sees of him, all she knows of him is that she catches a glimpse of him as he is leaving the orphanage that day. And as he leaves, the headlights from the driveway cast a shadow against the wall. And as shadows do, his shadow is long and stretched out. And all of a sudden, he reminds her of a daddy long-legged spider. So that's how she decides to address him. So all she really knows is that he's tall and he's rich and she assumes he's old. And she's not terribly respectful of him in the first few letters that she sends him. In fact, all the way through, <laughs> her letters to him poke fun sometimes. And mm-hmm. um, her character remains strong throughout, even though he is the one who is making it all possible for her. Yeah, she. I think she assumes that since her essays and the fun she poked presumably at her orphanage life are what caught his attention in the first place, she can afford to take a few risks there and not be a perfectly submissive, groveling, grateful recipient of his beneficence. Now, there are only two people in the play, and this script is about 50-50, libretto and script. Tell us how these two characters unfurl the story. 
Well, it starts with Jerusha's letters to him, which makes sense because he says that he will never write to her in his anonymous benefactor letter. So you you start out by seeing her writing these letters. You hear her speak them and sing them. But then as the show goes on, you start to get to see his reactions to that. Dane, maybe you could speak a, a little more to that. So it does start out a lot of just him kind of reading the letters. And it starts off, they are just kind of for him to check on her, make sure that she's getting her education, using his money wisely, how he <laughs> thinks it should be spent. But then she, since she is kind of poking fun at him, and he, I don't think he expects it at first, but then sees that and has fun with it a little bit himself but then gets more and more intrigued with every letter that she sends and I mean eventually is just like wow I, I want to meet this girl this is so much more than I had ever planned for just sending this girl to college and he gets kind of turned on his head a little bit. Now she assumes that he is an elderly gentleman possibly with white hair, possibly with no hair. Mm -hmm. She just imagines him to be kind of this ancient, wizened benefactor, but in fact, he isn't. Mm -hmm. He is not. He uh, comes from a rich family, and so he is a little more on the almost socialist side of the his family that he doesn't quite fit in, and he likes to give his money. He's a philanthropist, so he likes to help people with his money. As one of my lines says, instead of spending it on sensible things like yachts and polo ponies and things. And so he he's a little bit of a estranged from his family, just in his views. And so, but he is a younger man. And so it turns out a little different than she would think. So how is it only directing two people instead of a, a giant cast as a, as a director? It's quite lovely in some ways because, as Dane said earlier, we get to go a little bit deeper. When you have a lot of, a lot of actors as a director, you have to know a little bit about each character. And so the time and the attention gets spread a little bit thinner. But when you have only two actors, you really get to spend some time in rehearsal helping them dig deeply into their characters and going into more detail, helping them create more specific ideas, more specific worlds. I've asked Dane some weird questions in the process of the rehearsal, like, what's something weird I've asked you to think about? Oh, I don't even remember. Lots of things. (laughs) I think at one point I said, he has a line talking about the things that she has done for him toward the end of the show. He said, "Uh, what you've done for me, I never could do for myself. And so I said, okay, I want you to come up with five specific ways that she has changed your life, specific relationships, maybe within your family, that she has changed. Because as, as Dane said, he's kind of estranged from his family. He's, he's kind of been uh, closed off a little bit from people, I think it's fair to say. And so she, I said, you know, come up with five specific ways that she's changed how you've related to your family. And that's, that's the kind of question you don't always get to delve into with a bigger cast. So it's been really nice. And as an actor, when there's only two of you on the stage, and the two of you are on the stage the whole time, there's no going off, catching your breath and coming back. I mean, you're on stage for two hours. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how is that? It, I mean, it's very different. It 
it's not as scary as I thought it would have been at first. I mean, once we really got into it, I mean, I've never done a show like this, even in big shows where you are a lead, you still have those songs that you get to go off that somebody else sings and you can kind of look at your script, get a drink of water or whatever. But yeah, I mean, we only each go off once or twice for 10 or 15 seconds just to kind of go around or do a change or something. And so I was, a, I was a little bit afraid at first, but it's when you really get into it, you are developing that character so much. And so once you're in it, I mean, you're really in it and it does move so well with the songs and the dialogue and there's never a dull moment of it. So it's good. It, it's nice. So there are only two voices. So the musical composer, Paul Gordon, had quite a challenge to make the score interesting and compelling because he needed to hold the audience's interest for two hours. So tell us a bit more about the musical elements of the production. In true musical fashion, he uses a lot of repeated melodies and ideas kind of things. We, there's a couple of times that we basically sing the same songs, but w different words. And so that is nice and also a challenge sometimes of now that we've done it so much, trying not to sing the other person's lyrics and things. Um, but it's beautiful music. It flows so well. And with just the two voices they blend the harmonies and really pull the emotion out of all of the songs and the story, which is very nice. Well, let's listen to a song from the show. This song is called Who Is This Man? It's sung by Megan McGuinness, and it's from the original off-Broadway cast recording. Who is this man Who has designed this uncommon plan To educate Jerusha However best he can how can this be who would take on this uncertainty to educate Jerusha? Who in heaven's name is he? I guess I'll never know him. I guess I'll never even learn his name. These are his orders. This is his game. I guess I'll never know him. You mustn't know your battle. But he will know me in letters And though I might thank him twice each and every night He will never answer No, Mr. Smith will never write Megan McGuinness singing Who Is This Man from the original off-Broadway cast recording. 
One of the things I love so much about the music of this show is that, as Dane said, a lot of the musical themes repeat. So in your head, there's something that clicks like, okay, this music is familiar, but every time the music is sung, the ideas and the emotions are different attached to it. So it's it's like looking at a, a different facet of the same diamond, so to speak. You get a slightly different picture, a slightly different reflection every time. And so it's it's something easy to hold on to, but it never you never lose your interest because it's something new every time you hear the music. Now, I know, Dane, when you were in Sweeney Todd at Talking Horse last year, the musical director, Enola White, and the orchestra had pre-recorded the entire score for the cast mm-hmm. and made alterations for you as, as needed. Mm-hmm. How is the music set up for Daddy Longlegs? Because it's a three-piece band, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, so with this one, uh, we have a live orchestra, and so we have a piano player, a a cello player and a guitarist and they're just kind of we have our set along one of the long sides of talking horse there and they're just tagged on the end of the set basically right as you enter so they're right there with us i mean they're playing live they're doing everything every show so that's very exciting and very nice too it is it's really nice because as the actors work to interpret the songs you know they might give a slightly different take on it depending on things that happen in the show how they're reacting to each other and the orchestra can just follow along and support that to brag on dane a little bit too he's actually singing a little bit out of his normal range and he's doing a fantastic job with it so he's i've been very very happy with your work Thank you, thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Are you directing the orchestra too, or is there a conductor with the orchestra? I am not. Our pianist, Cheryl, is actually also the musical director, and she has been fantastic to work with. She has been, she's just really good at supporting the actors and giving them good instruction on how to sing the song based on their characters and what they need to do in the scene. It's not just, okay, these are your notes. It's very much what is motivating your character behind this song and how does that inform how you phrase it musically. When you buy the script for a play like this or a musical, do you have a choice of getting a CD that has the music pre-recorded or are you just automatically given the uh, music for it? Yeah, you do have a choice. You can buy pre-recorded tracks if you want to. I think Adam and I talked about that early in the process and I... Uh, tracks are good for rehearsal because that means you have the music consistently and if someone has a conflict you know you're not all of a sudden without music for your rehearsal but I as an actor and director always prefer the live musicians and it's, it's partly just because they're also kind of fun to watch and listen to there's something about live music that's just for lack of a better word it's much more present than right. a track mm-hmm. and easier to work with I think as an artist is, oh, it, yeah. is it is it easier for you as an actor too to have the musicians live there with you? Oh yeah, I would say so. Just because, like Margie was saying, when you make, as you develop the characters, you might kind of change how you see something or how you express your emotions, which might change how you want to sing something. And so you can stop and talk to the musicians and go, okay, I think I'm going to slow that down because I really want to take the time for that moment versus having to go, okay, well, that's how it was recorded. We can see if we can change it, but that's all we can do. And so that's it's very helpful and lets us develop our characters even further in the moment. 
to give it a little bit of history, Daddy Longlegs started out life as a book in 1912, written by, Missouri reference coming up, Mark Twain's grandniece <laughs> called Jean Webster. And Jean adapted it into a stage play herself, which debuted in 1914. And it also proved highly adaptable to the new world of film. In 1919, there was a film version that starred Mary Pickford. Um, in 1931, it had Janet Gaynor. And in 1935, Shirley Temple. In 1952, it became a British stage musical comedy called Love from Judy, which is the name that Jerusha takes in the play. She likes Judy more than Jerusha. And in 1955, Fred Astaire and Leslie Caron brought a new version of the story to the Cinemascope widescreen with music by Johnny Mercer, who penned the film's big hit song, Something's Gotta Give. But then, in America at least, it largely vanished from view pretty much for 50 years, even though it's been pretty big over in Asia and Japan. They have loved the story. Why do you think, Margie, that it took 50 years for it to kind of reappear in the American psyche? Good question. I think, confession, I I personally don't very much care for the Fred Astaire movie. (laughs) It's very different. It's not really very loosely based on the book. It is very loosely based on the book. As I was watching it when I was preparing to direct the show, I found myself thinking this is this is primarily a vehicle for Fred Astaire. And that's that's not what the book was originally written to be. In the movie, Fred Astaire is the central character. In the book, the original book, you actually never lay eyes, so to speak, on Daddy Longlegs. He never appears, he never speaks. It was very much a vehicle for Judy. And I wonder I wonder if that movie had anything to do with its disappearance because that became the version of the story people knew and it wasn't as compelling. No, it isn't. Because in the book, you and in this play, which is so faithful to the book, there are very few lines in our musical production in this production that are not taken directly from the book. And I think that's one of the things that makes it so powerful. In in the story, it's about it's a coming of age story about a very smart young woman who is both smart enough to realize that she is smart and smart enough to realize that there's a lot she doesn't know, which is, I think to some degree what we all want to be we all want to be able to we all want to be smart but we also want to be able to recognize when we're not the smartest person in the room because that's how we grow and that's how we learn and that was not at all present in the Fred Astaire movie so I wondered if that kind of became a a period in the life of the story but now for a lot of social and cultural and political reasons this kind of story has become interesting again it is it is enough of a Cinderella story and enough of a coming-of-age story that it has some very familiar elements, but there are some things about it that feel very modern in some ways. She talks about joining the suffrage movement, and that's something that is a little bit closer to our, our current cultural topics and our current psyche, I think. She's, she's very feisty, She is Jerusha slash Judy, and a lot of her lines speak to the in- intellect and empowerment of women. So I, I guess that's more of a zeitgeist now with mm. kind of Me Too and, and women taking more control of their destiny. But that does kind of make it interesting that at the, at the end, and give the game away a little bit, but, you know, she ends up marrying the man who has been this kind of strange shadowy influence in her life and there are elements that it's just a little bit creepy like who is this man <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's there's certainly the potential for that i think there's something important at the end though there is something i'm not going to give away too much but there's a moment in the play that dane and i have actually talked about a little bit where 
In the end, it is her choice. There is, there is nothing compelling her to do what she does. She chooses. She chooses love, and she, she doesn't have to choose him. There is nothing compelling her to choose him. That is her, her free will choice. At yeah, the end. he kind of lays it all out there, and after he decides, and then it's all up to her once she has all the information. And I like the fact that despite the fact she's come from poverty, um, and she sees that when she looks back on her time at the orphanage, she sees it as character building, that she's had this adventure mm-hmm. that other people don't get to have and that it has provided character for her. And although she marvels at the ability to be able to buy clothes and silk stockings and beautiful hats, she maintains a strong sense that despite her access to all this lavishness, that she should rely on her own resourcefulness. And she tries to turn, in the book, I'm not sure if this is in the play, she tries to turn down money that he's giving her. She wins a scholarship and and he says, no, you can't take the scholarship. And she says, I'm taking this scholarship. You can't tell me not to take it. I've worked for this. And he's saying, well, you know, someone else could have it. Mm-hmm. So I like the fact that she's not, she doesn't really have her head turned. She doesn't become super spoilt like one of her roommates. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> she has a great line in the play where she says that her roommates, Sally and Julia, seem to expect the world to pay up whenever they need it to. And she says maybe they have a right to it because it does seem to pay up whenever they need it to. But she, she knows that she has to work for what she has and she is not afraid of that work. She thinks it is, she thinks it's honorable. She thinks it's the right thing to do, to work hard, to make her own way in the world. And she, she is grateful for the gifts that she has been given, but never takes them for granted and never says, I have a right to this. She always says, I, I've got to work and I'm willing to and ready to. In the book, there are some other strong characters. You have Mrs. Lippitt, who mm-hmm. runs the orphanage, her mm-hmm. two college roommates, Julia mm-hmm. Pendleton and Sally McBride, Sally's brother, Jimmy McBride, possibly, you know, a bit of a worry, <laughs> could be another love interest. Why do you think the playwright opted to only have two people in the play? Well, I'll have one comment and then I'll let Dane answer that one. <laughs> On the very pragmatic end, it's always cheaper to have a smaller cast. <laughs> I think that does make sense. And also, it with this story, I think uh, since it is really about these two people and it, it just makes it easier on all levels to have a smaller cast in a production sense, but and then as well, it just lets you the the show, the cast, the crew to really dive into those characters as well as the audience. They aren't really distracted by other characters who don't really go through the development that these characters do or the have the problems or things so you you get to see those characters and you get to see kind of their impact like Margie was saying how Jerusha sees that her roommates are just entitled to everything and the world seems to just pay up for it whenever they want it but she doesn't feel that way and she feels like she has to work for herself and all of the discovery that Jervis goes through with reading her letters and everything Jervis is is daddy long legs Mm -hmm. yes oh yes yes (laughs) we haven't introduced him as a character (laughs) (laughs) yes Jervis daddy long legs and so with only having the two characters on stage and you only really hear from those two characters it really lets the audience focus on what's happening and the really 
important parts of the development of the characters. It's also not what has typically been done. When Webster adapted her own novel into a play, it had a much larger cast of characters. So I was looking at that and wondering, oh, that's kind of like they Marie Kondo'd this cast, took out everything that was unnecessary. And just, and I kind of like that because in the book, all you have is Judy's letters. Judy's voice is actually the only one you hear in the book. And I think they, I think when they started adapting this, they took a step back and said, you know, how can we, how can we be truest to the original tone of the book? And I think they've done an excellent job with that. Had you seen the play before you directed it okay you had seen it yeah i did it seems slightly unusual for talking horse it seems like more period and i always think of talking horse as doing a more contemporary and edgier works any Mm -hmm. idea why they chose this for the season whenever you choose a season it's it's partly about balance giving your audience a variety of things that still stay true to your core ideas and your core message and i think this show does i think this is it's a period piece but in some ways it does feel very contemporary Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and like we've discussed with all of the uh, women's issues and things, a lot of the things that we talk about and the struggles that people go through with relationships with friends and family and other things are very relevant today and to people in everyday life. And it, it's one of the stories that can be told time and time again. And you can always find something to come out of it and make your life a little better. The musical Daddy Long Legs opens tonight at Talking Horse Theatre on St. James Street and continues for three weekends. Evening shows start at 7.30, plus there are Sunday matinees this weekend and on April the 28th, but there's no Sunday matinee on Easter Sunday. The performance on Saturday the 20th of April will be ASL interpreted. To reserve a ticket, go to talkinghorseproductions.org or give them a call on 573-607-1740 and tickets cost $15. Thank you so much to Margie Peters and Dane Johnson for dropping by the studio. Thank you for having thank us. Thank you, thank you. Break a leg tonight. Thank you. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be back with Dr. Kevin Brown, Associate Professor of Digital Media and Performance Studies, to talk about his new adaptation of Alice in Wonderland and his research in karaoke. You are going to want to stay tuned. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. My next guest has a long resume within the world of theatre and an even longer list of research interests. He is the Associate Professor of Digital Media and Performance Studies and has been at the University of Missouri since 2009, where he teaches classes in contemporary theatre, performance ethnography and script analysis, amongst many others. Today he's on the show to talk about a new adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, which he wrote along with a team of theatre students and which opens next Thursday at the Rheinsberger Theatre. But as well as talking about that production, I have been fascinated by another area of my guest's research and his book, Karaoke Idols, Popular Music and the Performance of Identity. And a quote about the book, it says, a book for both the casual reader and the scholar and a fascinating exploration of our urge to perform and the intersection of technology and culture that makes it so seductively easy to do so. Welcome to the show, Kevin Brown. Thank you. Now, I promise we will get to Alice, but I just cannot bypass the opportunity of having you here in the studio to talk about your two years spent at a karaoke bar just outside Denver, where you went from 
barely able to carry a tune to being someone whom other karaoke patrons requested to sing. How and why did you get interested in the ethnography of karaoke? So uh, my undergraduate degree was in anthropology, and so I sort of have a background in anthropology and also a, a longtime interest in technology. I spent many years in the 90s working as a computer programmer, actually, before I went back to school for theater. So my karaoke research in many ways is kind of at the cross-section of a lot of my interests. And so at the karaoke book actually arose as my dissertation for my PhD. And we had to take a minor along with our PhD studies. And so my minor was in anthropology and cultural anthropology. And I wanted to do ethnographic research and originally you know, wanted to go to Japan and study karaoke. And one of my professors, my Japanese culture professor, actually said, well, why don't you do it here in the U.S.? And so that began two years of ethnographic research that was participant observation. So I both watched other karaoke singers and then also had to get up the nerve to get up on stage and do it myself. So uh, it was a lot of fun and also really fascinating aspect of culture that is still really popular today and really interesting, especially when you think about the way that technology keeps integrating with our lives more and more. I'm curious about the journey from being barely able to carry a tune to getting, presumably not ironically, mm -hmm. requests for you to sing. Yeah. Did you teach yourself to sing or did you learn to be happy with the voice you have? You know, I, I learned to be happy with the voice I had. It, you know, one thing that that I learned kind of in my reading and as I was going along was people that talk about rock music and how there's, you know, a lot of rock musicians aren't actually great trained singers. Like, you know, Elvis, I think that his range was maybe an octave, maybe a little bit more. So a lot of times it's, it's not necessarily about the virtuosity, but it's about the emotion that you put into it. And so once I sort of embraced that and just did my best, there's also sort of a, a do-it-yourself punk ethos that goes along with karaoke. And when I was in high school, I had a rock band that uh, I played in and I've been fascinated with music all my life, but I've never been able to get myself to be able to read music and have always sort of taken that, that punk approach of, well, I'll just pick up the guitar and play it anyway. And so that was sort of my attitude with the karaoke and, and just through doing it over and over and over again, which, which is, I think, what it takes with music. It gets better. Probably if I, you know, I haven't done karaoke in a few months and probably when I get up on the stage these days, my voice isn't quite what it used to be when I was in the depths of my research because it takes practice and you have to get back there. But yeah, it's, it's part of my life and it was a lot of fun. I, I'm sure everybody tells you their karaoke stories, so I'm going to tell you mine. So yeah. the last time I attempted karaoke was after I thought I had divested myself of the idea that I couldn't sing. I actually was taking singing lessons as a soprano, and I had recorded me singing Minnie Ripperton's classic, Loving You, in a professional studio for a friend of mine. It was, his it was his 40th birthday, and it was my gift to him was me singing Loving You. So when I stumbled across Loving You in a karaoke bar, I thought it was golden. Like, I've got this. I've totally got this. But it was a disaster. <laughs> And I left reconvinced that, in fact, I could not sing. So what happened? Well, the, the, you know, there's a, a, lot, uh, a lot of layers. You know, it's interesting that in our society, we learn from a very young age that we can't sing. <clears throat> and, you know, my, my feeling is that everybody is actually musical, that human beings are just there's something about language and the way that we evolve that we are musical. And, it, and it's really... 
part of the way of as we grow older and and kind of a disciplining that happens that we're told that oh you even in in terms of like scholarly research oh you can only do that if you're an expert and you sp- have to spend many many years so so there's a lot of things that we learn that we can't do even though I'm pretty sure that most everybody has sung in their shower or has turned on music and danced around their house. And so, yeah, and absolutely. And that's part of our lives. And the, the thing about singing karaoke, one of the things that I found out was that probably about 90% of the success rate has to do with finding uh, the right song. And uh, as they say on American Idol, making it your own. And so it's very difficult because sometimes the karaoke versions of songs are recorded by a different band and it might be in a different key and there might be different breaks where they cover up the bridge or something. And so you're not quite expecting the music to be the same way and it doesn't quite sound the way that it sounded to you in your shower in your car and so you kind of have to take a step back and the the great thing about karaoke and, and karaoke culture is that there's a sort of an ethos that goes along with it that it's okay to fail that people applaud you no matter how good or how bad you are and there's plenty of bad karaoke singers as I can attest to but you know it, it's about trying and, and giving yourself permission to fail and then by failing again and again eventually you will succeed and so it, it takes a lot of bravery but but I, I think that's also what makes it appealing because when you do go up and you finally catch the tune the right way that it, it's there's a rush of adrenaline and you really feel accomplished and it can really, for me, uh, and I write about this in my book about confidence and how how empowering that is to be confident, and it's something that I think is is lacking in society today is like our confidence to go out there and and to be okay to fail, but to to be able to succeed through building that kind of confidence. One of the things I thought was fascinating in the book, you talk about highbrow and lowbrow arts, and that from the beginning of the 20th century onwards, culture has been the hostage of an upper echelon of society, which has monopolized what constitutes art, darling. Mm -hmm. Don't you just die for Marla? Um, (laughs) And then the karaoke (laughs) undermines class divisions, and it provides a dream of upward mobility that is open to everybody, Mm -hmm. and that it's a much more democratic form of art. Talk a little bit about the democracy of karaoke. It's interesting, believe it or not, there's a connection here to Shakespeare and the way that Shakespeare has been performed from the beginnings of the Elizabethan stage and back during Shakespeare's time. It was popular entertainment, and so there were many different people of many different classes that would come and watch Shakespeare, and people could pay a, a single pence and go and watch a show, but then every once in a while the queen would show up, and so there was a little bit uh, for everybody, and it wasn't until the 1800s and the early 1900s that Shakespeare became sort of highbrow and high culture, and so the elite decided that there's a certain way to do Shakespeare. So this is kind of part of the postmodern condition and postmodernism in general is that some postmodern art like seeks to break down those barriers between high and low art, and, and we're seeing this everywhere, and I, I think karaoke is very representative of that, just the idea that why can't anybody do art? I should be able to do art, and maybe it won't be displayed in a museum, but that the whole idea of having a Picasso that costs millions of dollars that only the elite can afford to own, now with technology, 
you can get a, a almost perfect reproduction of a Picasso painting and put it in your own house and enjoy it. And so art should be something for everyone. And in terms of performance art, things like YouTube and social media have meant that really celebrity is available to everybody. And, and you say, again, a comment in your book, that because the members of society are so heavily exposed to the media, that live performance is maybe losing its cultural significance. So how does that bode for traditional highbrow art such as live theatre? which we're going to segue into next. A few years ago, I was invited to contribute to a salon that was a series that was published by TCG, Theatre Communications Group, and I wrote a little listicle called Why Theatre is Still Important in the 21st Century, and it really addresses this question of uh, Richard Schechner, who's a performance studies uh, scholar, uh, once said that theatre is the string quartet of the 21st century, and, and really he was saying that it's becoming something that only a small group of people come to appreciate. And that's part of what I'm doing with Alice is that all of the actors that are in the show are live actors and are on the stage. And so even though there's a lot of technology that's supporting it, theater is about liveness and about being there. And so that's something that has infused my work a lot. There's a a scholar named Philip Auslander who wrote a book called Liveness, Performance in a Mediatized Culture that takes this stance that, that as society gets more and more mediatized, even our kind of perception of a live performer on stage versus a, a performer on film or a, a TV screen or other forms of media, we sort of lose the perceptual apparatus to tell the difference. And when I first started reading uh, Philip Auslander w- was actually during my master's degree, and I didn't want to accept it, right? Like as a theater person, I thought, oh, that's ridiculous that um, we're here, the, the body is, you know, the site of resistance, and we can mount our political attack from here and then the more and more I read it I'm like "Mm, well you know he's at least half right and so a a lot of my work I I did actually my master's thesis was about robots and sort of asking the question of can a machine perform in the same way that a human can perform and then what does uncovering the failure of a machine to be able to do that what does that not only tell us about machines but also what does that tell us about the human body and the uh, human perceptual apparatus and, and the way that we can communicate in many different channels at one time and how robust that is and so it actually ends up teaching us a lot about what being human is and um, ultimately I decided with that research, was, which is, has uh, been published as a, a couple of different articles, that it's not necessarily about lifeness, but or about liveness, but it's about lifeness. That maybe we we no longer should talk about the live versus the recorded, but now we should talk about in what ways is life infused, and um, you know, having living actors on stage, and what does that mean? So that all brings us to A-L-I-C-E, your new adaptation of yeah. Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, a book which is no stranger to theatrical, musical and film adaptations. So why does the theatre world need another adaptation of Alice in Wonderland? Good question. This is something that my assistant director writes about in the program notes about uh, adapting Alice and and we adapted our own Alice. I started this project about two years ago and it started as I'm doing research for my second book, which is going to be about virtual reality and theater. 
And there's a, another professor on campus named Bimal Balakrishnan who works in the architecture department and does work with virtual reality and runs the iLab, which is a, a visualization lab in the architecture department, and they use it to build everything from uh, virtual operating rooms to train doctors to simulations of city planning and that sort of thing. And so I started talking to Bamal about, you know, maybe we could do some sort of collaboration. And Bamal actually has a background in, uh, has done some stuff in theater and was fascinated by it because he doesn't often get to use his uh, creative part of his brain. And and so we we're talking about, well, what, you know, what could we do? And and one of the problems with trying to find, you know, a story to put into virtual reality is copyright. And so I started to look at what are some stories that are in the public domain that we can use. And, not, and you know, a lot of the copyright law around virtual reality hasn't been worked out yet because it's so new that it just hasn't gone through the courts. And so I was doing research and I stumbled across uh, another adaptation of Alice in Wonderland. And it kind of hit me that, oh, my gosh, like this is the perfect metaphor for virtual reality because it's, you know, going through the rabbit hole and going into another world and and so it becomes a, a way to explore that and Bamal was very excited about it because it most of the stuff that he does is in human scale and so with Alice growing and shrinking all the time it's it's a way to not only do virtual reality but kind of a virtual surreality so that intersected with one of our graduate students, Haley Rushing, is a, a Lewis Carroll scholar. And in fact, she grew up, her parents were actually uh, Alice enthusiasts. Her whole life, she's been studying Alice and goes to conferences and uh, there's entire Carolinian scholars. And so I brought her on board. And so she's been great to help inform the cast and me about kind of all of the history and all all of the layers upon layers of themes and meanings that are, are in these books. And another thing that became very meaningful to me along the process was uh, my mom, actually, when she found out that, that we were doing Alice, she gave me her versions of, of, the, of the two books that were passed along to her by her great aunt. And so these books from the early 1900s that have beautiful illustrations and they have this kind of patina of children's fingerprints and scribbles and this idea of the well-loved children's book. And so that became part of the inspiration for the process and part of, part of the design. So what we have with Alice is sort of a uh, virtual reality inspired version of Alice, but then the design elements are very much about reading and about the book and sort of the storybook paper of the pages coming into four dimensions and, and the characters coming off the page and coming to life as if they were the illustrations from the books. So what is the audience experience? At Alice. Yeah, so one of the things I'm writing about in my, my book that I'm working on, uh, and I'm finding out uh, really interesting research, is this idea that theater is the original virtual reality. And in fact, the, the very first person to ever use the phrase virtual reality was a writer and theater practitioner in France named Antonin Artaud, who wrote in his uh, works were published as The Theater and Its Double. And he wrote about theater as, you know, a kind of mirage, as a kind of uh, double, a representation of real life. And it wasn't until the 1980s that 
that the term virtual reality became associated with a specific kind of technology that, you know, what we usually think of as the the head-mounted display, sort of a computer screen that you put on your face and then you go into a different reality. And um, so there's some approaches to VR that uh, there's actually a group of scholars at the University of Illinois in Chicago that in the early 90s started creating what they call the cave. That is a different approach where the user stands in the middle of projection screens and then views the projection screens through um, stereoscopic glasses. And it's a lot less bulky. It's more freeing. So in many ways, what we're, the arrangement that we're doing with Alice is that the entire audience is seated in sort of a cave arrangement. And so the, there's projection screens that go all the way around the audience. So the actors are live and they're standing in front of the audience. So all that is still theater. And then the background and the environment is virtual. And so it's a, a really maybe even more of a mixed reality approach. So the, the idea is to fully immerse the audience. That, you know, that's another... Uh, interest of mine is a, a recent trend in immersive theater, and there's a lot of different people that are are doing uh, immersive theater. Uh, you know, that like Punch Drunk, Sleep No More, the uh, version of Macbeth that that is taken over New York City by storm and is very popular. So I've been reading a lot about immersive theater and VR, and so all of those elements and inspiration are kind of coming together in this production. So as an audience member, am I wearing a headset? No. So that's that's the fun part, right? Is that when we started looking at about how can we we do this, that would be pretty expensive. You know, we thought about that or we thought about, well, maybe we can, you know, lead people through rooms one at a time and have them view it. But part of VR, it's interesting that it first became very trendy in the late 80s and early 90s, but it never really caught on because it, technology wasn't quite there. Was, the computers were too slow. The graphics were too poor. And then you had to wear these like this, all this like bulky equipment on your head. And it really just wasn't very fun and so it kind of went out of style for a while and and in recent years the computer speed is finally catching up it's finally becoming affordable where anybody can go out and buy a VR device for as little as $8, you can buy like a Google Cardboard that's basically a thing that you pop your phone into and you can watch a 360 video. So it's becoming more accessible. However, one thing that I'm a little skeptical about is if it really will continue to catch on or if this is another kind of false start. And so one of the things that companies are facing in terms of, of the experience is not being sticky enough. They're not, you know, it's not like your phone where you carry it around all the time and you're always on Facebook or whatnot. And and I believe that a lot of that is the failure of embodiment so that the stories that are being told, you don't always feel embodied in the space. Um, and embodiment and presence is something that in the theater we study and that I'm fascinated by. And so I think that that theater has a lot to say, say for that. So it was really appealing to me to be able to do it in a way that people didn't have to wear the bulky equipment. And then the other aspect is that there's a, a sort of communitas that happens that, you know, as Victor Turner, the anthropologist talked about, sort of in ritual or cultural events, like even we go to movie theaters and there's an appeal to going to the movies that isn't just about watching the movie, but about watching it with others. And so that, you know, human beings are social animals. And so we're always going to have that social need. And so a lot of these VR experiences as they're currently made are very isolating. And so, you know, if I'm downstairs doing my VR and my wife is upstairs, like I can't talk to her or um, sometimes my dog even 
and like freaks out when I put in the helmet and like is like licking me and are you okay? And so, you know, you, you feel like you're kind of stuck in this other place. And so I think that in the future, in order for VR to be successful, uh, we'll need to solve problems like embodiment and presence and also make it social so that we're in VR with other people. And then perhaps, um, and, there, and there's actually, they're working on ways to create the devices so that there's cameras on the front of the device and so that so you can turn a knob and then change the transparency so that you could see what's around you like if I needed to get a drink of water or whatever you know because I'm playing my video game and I get thirsty and then I don't have to take off all the equipment and then put it back on so I think once we're able to solve those problems then we're getting somewhere. So what am I seeing projected on the screens is it kind of a Ken Burns cartoon or from the from the illustrations in your book or is it reality what am I seeing on yeah so you know we were uh we looked at a lot of different Alice's and and, you know, one of the inspirations was the early Disney movies and cell animation and the the, uh, the machines that they would use that were they would create these drawings on cellophane and then set them up in cameras that had multiple layers. And then the cameras would move. So kind of a Ken Burns effect on multiple layers of celluloid. And so so we're sort of taking that approach. Many of the images are photos are photorealistic so it's kind of a mix of like an animation approach but with photorealistic which is which is kind of interesting because oftentimes the if people do projections with theater the projections are much more non-realistic or there's some theorists who have talked about like Robert Edmund Jones who was a theater designer in the early 1900s wrote about this kind of from from the beginnings of uh, people who were combining film and theater, he saw the theater as a kind of dream medium, and he had this idea that the actors on stage could represent the conscious, and the the projected images would be the unconscious. And so we're kind of flipping that around a little bit with this production, where you would think that the characters on stage would be more real than the projections, but it's actually a little bit the opposite, that the projections are photoreal, and the actors are wearing costumes that are, are Victorian-inspired, but also human wearing a bunny costume and you know things like that it's our caterpillar and um and so all the characters that we know from the books are there and telling the story to us so alice famously grows larger and mm-hmm. shrinks how is that done in relation to what you're seeing on the screen so the images are actually what shrink and grow. And so, you know, Alice, the actor, of course, we can't get her to grow and shrink. <laughs> Although, you know, there's a lot about food in the Alice story, you know, and, and, it, and it is about a, a young girl that's try, trying to come to terms with becoming a woman. And, and a lot of that is when you're a kid is like, what's happening to my body? And like, I, when I eat stuff, I get bigger, right? And so from the technological standpoint, Brad Carlson, who's our media designer, he's done a lot of great work to, we have some software that runs the images. There's actually five projectors that project all around the space. And then there's a piece of software called Isadora that runs in order to fuse the images and like break up the pictures so that they, each projector takes a piece of it. Um, And then that software can 
actually manipulate the image digitally in real time. And so uh, you just tell the software, grow the image at this point, shrink it at this point, move it at this point. So there's places where Alice is walking through the forest and the background sort of moves as she's walking through the forest. So it's a lot of fun and it takes a lot of time to sort of program it and then to practice it, to time it along with the live actors. But it's very effective and, and really cool. So I've been to the Rheinsberger Theater. Where, mm -hmm. where am I sitting? Am I on a swivel chair? How am I seeing things that are going on behind me? We are in the Rheinsberger, but we actually, the audience is sitting on the stage. And so what, uh, what Brad came up with is that uh, we, there's only 125 seats per performance, but the audience is facing 90 degrees like toward where the fly rail is. And then those battens where, the, where we usually fly scenery from, uh, we've created rails upon which the screen, so we have these giant 16 feet screens that run on the fly rails. And, and so the, the audience is sitting sort of in between the screens and there's a screen on the back and then the projections are all around them. This is so fascinating. It is, yeah, <laughs> it's fun. to come and see it. Yeah, I hope you do. ALICE, or A-L-I-C-E, which stands mm -hmm. for Art, Literature... Information, Communication, and Engineering. And okay. that just refers to sort of the fact that it's interdisciplinary, and I'm working with other professors on campus from all different disciplines in order to make this happen. So A-L-I-C-E, or yeah. ALICE, opens next Thursday at the yeah. Rheinsberger Theatre at the University of Missouri, and it runs for two weekends. You can buy tickets for the show online at theatre.missouri.edu, and that's theatre spelled R-E, the correct way, <laughs> or by calling the box office at 573. That's very highbrow. <laughs> that's how I roll. Um, call the box office at 573-882-PLAY, which is 7529. The box office is open Monday to Friday from 2 till 5, as well as an hour before the show starts. Tickets are $16. And if you would like to read Kevin's book, Karaoke Idols, Popular Music and the Performance of Identity, it is available from the University of Chicago Press as well as on Amazon. Thank you so much, yeah, Kevin Brown. You, this sounds so amazing. Thanks. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts. And before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, we will take our usual whistle-stop tour of some of the arts events that are going to be vying for your attention over the next seven days. This afternoon at the Mont Mini Art Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre, you can see a new show by artist Matt Ballou called The Eternal Idol. The opening reception for the art show is from 4.30 till 6.30 and Matt will be giving an artist's talk. This is a free event open to all. At Talking Horse Theatre, the musical Daddy Longlegs opens tonight and runs for three weeks. A story about a teenage orphan and her mysterious benefactor. Evening shows start at 7.30 plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $15. At the Columbia Entertainment Company this weekend, you can see the comedy Noises Off. The curtain rises at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus there is a 2pm matinee on Sunday. And tickets are $14 and the show continues for one more weekend. In Jefferson City, Jesus Christ Superstar is on at Capital City Productions. The dinner theatre doors open at 6 tonight and tomorrow, plus there's also a Saturday matinee. And tickets for a meal and the show are $38. At William Woods University's main stage theatre, you can see their children's play, Sir Slob and the Princess. And the evening show starts at 7.30 tonight and tomorrow, plus it's a final 2pm matinee on Sunday. And at Rose Park tonight at opening doors open at five o'clock the artists line up for this year's roots and blues and barbecue festival will be announced around 6 p.m plus there is live music from the daves the bernie sisters and the nick schnebelen schnebelen how do you say that mike nick schnebelen band <laughs> sorry nick this is a free event 
Tomorrow morning, the Boone History and Culture Centre continues its Meet the Author series with a talk by Jeffrey Viles, author of The Sasquatch Murder, A Love Story. The show, uh, sorry, the talk starts at 10.30 and it is free and open to all. Tomorrow afternoon, the second annual Local Fest returns to Rose Park with an all-day lineup of local musicians like Loose Loose, Mercer and Johnson, Violet and the Undercurrents, Tim Pilcher and Monica Lord, and so many more. It all kicks off at Rose Park tomorrow at 1 o'clock and tickets are $10 for which you get a lot of local musical talent. At Stevens College, there are three chances to see the 75th Annual Student Designer Fashion Show. And those are tomorrow at 2, 4.30 and 7. Tickets cost $10 and can be purchased online at thecollectionsfashionshow.com. Tomorrow evening at 7 p.m., the Glenn Miller Orchestra plays at the Missouri Theatre and tickets for that show are $28. And at the Museum of Art and Archaeology, the annual Music and Art Concert is tomorrow evening at 6 p.m., featuring the Ars Nova Singers and a concert that explores the elements of design. Tickets are free, but reservations are requested, and you can do that by calling the museum. Sunday at Murray's, the Air and Deal Trio perform two concerts at 3.30 and 7 as part of the We Always Swing Jazz Series season. At Cafe Berlin on Sunday, Resident Arts is holding its annual spring fundraiser from 6 till 9. Tickets cost $10, with proceeds going towards the completion of four more murals on the MKT underpasses. And Sunday night at the Blue Note, there is a Michael Jackson tribute show starring the world's number one Michael Jackson impersonator, which I'm guessing might have become a harder profession in recent months. The show starts at 7 p.m. and tickets cost from $20. Monday evening, the Trio Tres will be at Drink Craft Cafe to give a concert and raise money for a musical residency program to benefit Puerto Rico. The evening includes a dinner of Puerto Rican flavors served from 6 till 7, as well as a concert which starts at 7 p.m. Tickets for dinner and the concert are $45 or you can also get tickets for just the concert part of the evening and those are $15 and you can reserve a place at that dinner or the concert by calling Drink Craft Cafe on North 10th Street and only 30 seats are available for dinner so if you want to do that give them a call. At Columbia College next Thursday afternoon, there will be a reception and award ceremony for their annual student exhibition. This is free and open to all and starts at 3 p.m. At the Stevens College Warehouse Theatre, the college's New Works Dance Concert opens next Thursday. It's a chance to see the Stevens Dance Company perform student choreography. That concert starts at 7.30 and tickets are $8. At the Rheinsberger Theatre on the University of Missouri campus, the play Alice, an adaptation of Alice in Wonderland, opens next Thursday and runs for two weekends and tickets cost $16. And at Rose Music Hall, the band Son Volt are in town for two gigs next week on Thursday and Friday. However, their Friday gig is already sold out. So if you want to see them, it'll have to be Thursday. Their show starts at nine next Thursday and tickets are $19 if you buy them in advance. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagen. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.